This is Ram Das here and now, and I'm Raghu Marcus. And today we have a, a talk from Ram. It's not a talk from Ram Das, it's an interview. It's a very interesting interview uh, by Radio for Peace. And this is May 94. And uh, we're going to call the interviewer the Radio for Peace guy. He was pretty good. He had some interesting angles and questions. And for me, uh, a, uh, there's a good part of this that centers around satsang and the realities of satsang, community of beings who help each other on the path is just the most uh, simplistic definition of satsang or sangha it is called in the Buddhist jargon. And I have to say, in my own experience, in the very beginning, first of all, you don't even know what satsang is. You just sort of gravitate with people who seem to be interested in some of the same things you are. And in this case, we're talking about consciousness, spiritual path. And uh, so you do gravitate. Well, what do you talk about? Well, you talk about books that you've read. You talk about perhaps even the idea of, of practices and meditation. And in my case, in the very beginning, I uh, gravitated towards different books that featured the stories of uh, saints and siddhas and gurus, uh, particularly back then, uh, Yogananda, Autobiography of a Yogi, a yogi which was a, a very important book uh, for me and for many, many, many people. Of course, that's that, there's that great movie that's out about Yogananda. Yogananda. And um, who else? For me, Mayor Baba, um, Sri Ramakrishna. So these were some of the beings that I felt were like part of my satsang that I was hanging out with. And and they were a constant reminder of, of as what uh, Ramdas uh, mentions, they, were, they are a constant reminder of what our journey is about. So that, to me, is the first step into satsang. And then the next is, is as I say, you start to meet different people, and you share that one common thing, spiritual path, and the different ways that we can all uh, approach it, think about it, relate to it. And so the interviewer in this case brought up some of the some of the problems that uh, that happen that especially you read about, but you know you can everyone kind of can experience it for themselves. And that's there's a a pressure sometimes in a group, to conform to the median, to the middle. Um, and in that pressure to conform, you, things can get very, very straight-jacketed in terms of there's not as much freedom to explore because there are certain boundaries within some of these traditions that people can misinterpret and... Uh, and get stuck in in places that uh, confine one, so that there is 
that kind of pressure in different satsangs. And, of course, I'm not going to go into the different ones that I myself uh, encountered and felt were a little bit like a suit that didn't fit quite right. But even in that case, uh, it's absolutely true that you get to learn many, many different things about yourself. It's, it's my, part of this is reflected in, in a story I've told before, but it bears uh, telling again just now. When I first went to India and I went to uh, visited Swami Muktananda, uh, and uh, many people know, a, a very well-known yogi, uh, from uh, back in the uh, 70s. And uh, so everyone, you, I had no idea about any of this stuff, and I, but part of the, the tradition, especially uh, in Hinduism and most Eastern religions, is that you bow down to the feet of the guru. And that was not something I was at all comfortable with, and I felt like I was wearing a very ill-fitting suit. And I I did it, and it was like yucky. And next day, uh, Ramdas happened to come to this particular ashram, to his ashram, and I mentioned the whole thing. And I said, "What the heck is this for?" And he said, "Well, it's about um, the Namaste, the inner light, acknowledging the inner light in another being, and whatever it is that holds you back." You just watch that, witness it, and it is an opportunity to grow. And this is what he said to me. And, I, of course, none of it changed until I got to Neem Karoli Baba, where I, the first second I met him, I didn't even think about that. It was an automatic reflex. So uh, at some point in these situations with satsang, you, are, you can encounter many things that feel constricting, you, either because there is your own fears that you're dealing with, which is always good to encounter, or there is actually a very um, constricting atmosphere in, in that particular group, perhaps. And again, that's all uh, grist for the mill, as somebody said. Um, and really, the, the idea of, of satsang is... Um, is obviously to transform one's separateness. This is a major way to share in that way with people, especially doing practices together. I found, and I find today, that that is one of the most important things, that, uh, that our ability to meet with each other in, in, in situations where we can practice together is very uplifting and very supportive. And obviously, uh, here Ramdas says... Uh, the possibility is there in a spiritual community to die into the truth. Very dramatic words. Uh, people die very hard, don't we? So a lot of time when that happens, fear comes up. And when fear comes up, that's when people, we, fall back on structures and it's those structures that structures that can get uh, they really define the word constricting. So this is um, this is an important important subject. Then there's other things that are talked about here: faith and belief. He, uh, Mr. Radio for Peace guy, 
He talks about faith and belief. Uh, Ramdas mentions that faith is is a nature of being, and it's uh, uncovering your nature. Of course, that's another um, the p- another possibility and another potential transformation possibility when uh, when we actually can. Um, um, find faith as part of our nature and get uh, and have that revealing go on. Uh, I want to call this heart language because to me, uh, this kind of community, um, once we start communicating uh, in, in heart language to each other, uh, we really are able to overcome so much separateness. And that is, the, to me, the highest value of, uh, of us supporting each other in satsang. So, um, here it is. Uh, wait, before I play this, or before we play this, uh, we have to th- talk about uh, the fact th- that uh, we have an extraordinary, and I've mentioned it in the podcast before, Retreat coming up, cultivating the courage to love. And this is a real call to action for everybody out there. Uh, May 1, 2, 3. Go to ramdas.org and you'll be able to sign up. This is free. Obviously, uh, we we love for you to continue supporting everything that we do and that we put out on ramdas.org and elsewhere. And um, But this is going to be special. It's with Ramdas and Roshi Joan Halifax and Krishnadas. And um, I think I'm going to be in there with Ramdas one day myself. So please go to ramdas.org and check out the Cultivating the Courage to Love online retreat, which will be streamed from our retreat in Maui, May 1, 2, 3. So I had to get that little thing in there. And um, so here we go. I'm going to call this Heart Language. And we are at Ramdas here and now. Baba Ramdas is spiritual teacher to a generation of Americans. His seeking began with what he calls his research with Timothy Leary into psychedelic drugs. His journey deepened at the feet of his guru in the Indian Himalayas, and it continues today as he shares his insights with a growing number of seekers throughout the world. I talked to Ramdas at the Omega Conference and asked him whether it is better to live one's spiritual life in solitude or in the service of others. It's possible to get trapped in any method. And uh, the, pr- the predicament is that the, the, when we are out in the marketplace, the world is so much with us that we don't get a chance to be quiet inside to hear other messages or deeper truth. The predicament of stopping to listen to the deeper truth is we lose our connection to the marketplace of which we are part because we are incarnate here. And so this is an art form and you've got to listen to your intuition. At moments the best thing to do is pull back and at others the best thing to do is participate. And to me, the according to my method, which is just another method, my method is working on myself through participation, through service into the, into the, to relieve the suffering of the world. And using that, it's called in the East Karma Yoga. It's called by a lot of different names in different traditions. But it's the way of the Sufi. It's, it's the way of 
of Tantra. It's the way of using the life experiences as a vehicle to become free. Because when you're free, you then can free other people. You mentioned in your talk that you had gone through a kind of ascetic stage and that you moved beyond that. In that ascetic stage, did you withdraw yourself from the world? And was there a point where you kind of realized that this was not the way to make the, the kind of spiritual progress that you were looking for in your life? I've done that probably several times. I mean, I'll go off, say, to sit in Burma in meditation for months. And then at some point, I just feel there was a great moment when I was sitting in a, uh, a, a monastery in Burma, and I was going to sit for three months. At the end of the two months, I got a cable saying that my stepmother was going to be operated on the next day, in a, or in a few days, back in Boston. My father was very old. I got the cable, and I immediately realized I had to go back. I had a part to play in life. And I went to the teacher, and the teacher said, it's too bad because you're making great progress. If you stayed now, you would be able to relieve the suffering of many. Here you will only go and relieve the suffering of who you go. And I said, I understand that and you understand that. I have to do it. And I went and it was wonderful. I mean, it felt right on that I did that. And the next few days later, there I was in intensive care wards, sitting there for hours like I'd been sitting in the monastery. And I was working with that experience in terms of my awareness and my mind. So it's really a question of finding a balance. If we try to work in the world without an inner center and sense of calm, then that work will not be very effective and it also won't lead to our own spiritual development. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. You, you come from a tradition, the Hindu tradition, which is very focused on personal spiritual practices. Uh, what is the role of the community of believers in Hinduism and in Buddhism? Well, in Hinduism, it would be called the satsang, and in Buddhism, it would be called the sangha, which are the community of beings who are seeing their life in spiritual terms. And therefore, they're being in connection with one another, either physically or through books or through whatever means, uh, helps support the work of the individual. So the spiritual journey, like in Buddhism, you take three refuges. You take the refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma, and the sangha in the Buddha meaning in the fact of enlightened possibility, the Dharma, the way to do that, practices to do that, and the Sangha, the community of beings who help you along the way. So that I hang out with all these beings, whether they are in my mind, or in my heart, in my memory, or in my books, or in people I meet and, and touch. I hang out with them in a way to constantly be reminding me of what my journey is about. And in our society where the greater culture is reminding us often of just the opposite type of values. The importance of satsang or sangha becomes all the greater, I would imagine. I think it does, and I think it's harder to come by than in a culture where they acknowledge that that's what the game is about. I think it's much harder to come by, and I think a lot of people have to go it alone on the physical plane, and they have to rely on books and tapes and things like that. But I think that if you really know what you're listening for, you will find other people right around you, very close at hand, that are ready to play, to help each other on the journey. Granted that the kind of spiritual community, the satsang that you talk about is very important, is it also important to uh, maintain one's own kind of individual path despite it. Is there a pressure in groups sometimes to conform to a certain 
point of view, a certain way of doing things and thinking about things that eventually will turn out to be uh, destructive of one's personal spiritual path. I think that's the history of ashrams and monasteries. They start out with living truth and very open and creative and people are surrendering deeply. And then after very little while, they have a very short half-life of living spirit. They get calcified, especially if they succeed in, in doing something. They try to institutionalize what they've done and then they do violence to the spirit. Institutions that are optimum for the spirit are totally creative and they're totally, in a way, in the process of dissolving and being created every moment. And uh, it's a very hard and difficult path to work with institutions. The history of monasteries is that they were there to free people and they end up entrapping them. And they have the intention of freeing and some people do get free through them, but fewer and fewer all the time. Why do you think that is? I mean, I've also lived in spiritual communities where precisely the dynamic that you're talking about has happened. Uh, one can understand it in the greater world, but where people are getting together for spiritual purposes and have, we hope, attained some level of consciousness, why is it so difficult to maintain this, this kind of freedom, which is so important for, for real spiritual growth? I think we underestimate the power of the addiction to um, um, separateness or power or control or because of feeling separate. And I think that uh, a monastery and ashram is facing you with the possibility of dying into truth or whatever. Uh, that's what they're about. And people die very hard. And what happens is, as you get closer to it, you get a little more frightened, and as you get more frightened, you get entrenched in structures to protect you from dying. So it becomes a social institution to help everybody appear to be dying and also, but to be not dying. And that's, and then they mea culpa their way on, but they don't ever al allow themselves the, the possibility. Of, it's always like making love and never the consummation of the love affair. Oh, that's beautiful. Swami Vivekananda said that it's good to be born in a church, but it's bad form to die in a church. Do you, uh, do you find that observation relevant to what we're talking about in terms of institutions, that it's good to be born in a religious institution to get one's uh, initial kind of spiritual formation, if you can say that, in an institution, but then to move beyond it in certain ways? And have you found that in your own path to be the case? Uh, I would say it's great to be born around conscious and spiritual being. Uh, if that happens, if it turns out to be a religious institution, fine. It could turn out to be a very simple village community, uh, whatever it is, just to be around people that are connected to the universe in a spiritual as well as an earth dimension, uh, to me, would be a good birth. Yesterday, you made a very interesting distinction between faith and belief. Could you talk a little bit about the difference between those two? Well, I, uh, those words, I'm sure, have many, many uh, meanings to many people, and it's presumptuous of me to play with them even. But for me, I think um, I'm, uh, that particular line in which uh, Aldous Huxley and Ireland had a wise person redo the Lord's Prayer Resay the Lord's Prayer as our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily faith and deliver us from our beliefs. 
And what I think he was referring to was that beliefs are concepts. And faith is not a concept. Faith is a, a nature of beingness. It's not like you have faith. Faith is. And uh, you live in faith. But you have beliefs. And beliefs won't keep you warm in a cold night. All the concepts of how you're going to die in the Tibetan everything or Jewish or anything isn't going to keep you warm when you're dying. They're beliefs. And as the mind starts to break down with um, Alzheimer's or with whatever happens in the brain chemistry changing, um, there goes all the beliefs. And what's left is just what's left. And what's left is about faith when the conceptual structures fall apart. So I'm really tuning more into that non-conceptual universe that really, uh, in which you know something because you've become it. So when somebody says, do you believe in that? I say, no, it just is, which infuriates them. <laughs> How dare you say you know what is? Yeah. Right. That, that's. Uh... A more radical statement even than, than saying, I know the truth, and, and it's this and this exactly. and this and this. Exactly. Is it possible to live without beliefs, or is it even desirable to live without beliefs? You, you mentioned before that, that the two can go together, the faith and the beliefs can both exist simultaneously. But do we reach a point where beliefs just no longer seem relevant, and we just kind of let them go? And, I think um, the art is to have beliefs and hold them very lightly and hold them um, because it's functional to have a kind of a, a tentative roadmap of the game. But I think you've got to be ready to throw it away the minute the road obviously isn't going where the roadmap said and you've got to listen for a new roadmap. But I think it's useful to have opinions, beliefs, attitudes uh, as long as you're not caught in them, as long as you're not identified with them. I have lots of opinions, beliefs, and so on, but I don't care whether they're true or not. I just, I'm functioning as if they are for the moment. But they're open to change any time. So the difference maybe uh, in a spiritually evolved person is that those beliefs are held very lightly. You can let go of them very easily. They're there, but they don't, they don't really catch one, in a sense. Yeah, that's right, exactly right. I recently saw an advertisement for a PBS series on consciousness, which was very interesting that they would do a program, a whole series on consciousness. And the name of the series is A Glorious Accident. And it occurred to me, talking about beliefs, that this belief in our culture, that consciousness, that life itself is just an accident, just a kind of concatenation of atoms and uh, coming together and forming uh, life, that, that this core belief is something which, uh, which is quite a formidable barrier to a deeper spiritual understanding. Do you feel that, that that's true? Um, well, I think philosophical materialism is pretty entrenched in this society. But I also feel that the human heart knows differently and that um, those are descriptions for the intellect, not for the heart. And. Uh, that anybody that wants to speak heart language to the heart will be heard in the heart. So just because the main messages being transmitted by the culture are philosophical materialism doesn't mean that the heart-to-heart -heart underpinnings of the society are rooted in that. You, you are, of course, a longtime observer of American culture and society. 
do you find that the ideas that you're talking about are becoming more mainstream and that you are more able to introduce them into situations which previously it would not be possible to talk about these things? Dramatically so, yeah. Um, I'm talking to audiences that never would have been able to hear anything I was saying in the 60s, that kind of an audience from that strata of society, and they are very receptive now. There is a way in which a lot of the ideas that I have been connected with are now mainstreamed in some subtle way or other. There's a lot of other ideas that aren't ideas I'm in harmony with, but, but a lot of the stuff is mainstreaming quite quickly. And yet, at the same time, we see a deterioration in society in certain ways. I mean, the crime, the fear that people live with uh, all the time, especially in a city like New York. Uh, do you think that things are getting better and worse simultaneously, if that was possible? I think they're changing. And I think your interpretation of change is, is depending on where you think you're standing. I mean, if, you, if you're holding on to what you got, then change is scary to you. If you're just open to, ah, this is a new moment. It's all up for grabs. There's going to be a realignment of economic uh, stuff. There's going to be, I mean, the riots in L.A. are going to be in Beverly Hills next time. They're not going to be in L.A. It's, the whole game can change. And if you don't have any vested interest, there is an agony in the world that comes from the disequilibrium of and the lack of justice and the lack of responsible use of resources. There is an agony, a deep agony. And that agony is going to keep manifesting in different ways. That doesn't mean that that's bad. That, to me, is our humanness rising up to say we've got to be counted. And it upsets the apple cart. There's no doubt about it. The question is, how much vested interest have you got in the apple cart? And uh, I, I am listening to hear. I mean, I don't want to throw out the baby with the bath and lose cultural possibility and have this go the way of the Roman Empire or the Greek Empire. But there's a damn good chance that it's going to. But it also may not. It may be that uh, the nature of information, the nature of which instantaneously so much is available to so many people, that's another plane of consciousness. Historically, we've never had to deal with. That in itself makes everything run through very quickly. So guns, murder, ban on assault weapons, duh, duh, duh. I mean, you can't, you just see sequences unfolding of people like South Africa. I mean, gosh, that's great stuff. Uh, just like Eastern Europe was great stuff, but great stuff also has inherent to continuing problems and suffering and on and on. And what we're seeing is the deeper forces of the agony and the cry, and really the cry is about our own fear and the way in which fear leads us to not be conscious and reasonable and compassionate in the way we live. And... Um, uh, the answer to fear is not more fear. The answer to fear is to find in yourself that part that is not afraid. And then to be present and to allow that to resonate with that place in other people that is not afraid to change rather than, because you're not going to make the streets safe the way the, the government would like to do. That isn't going to work that way. You, you spoke yesterday about a relationship that you had with the White House speechwriter. Could you talk a little bit about that? And do you think that 
through your relationship with people in the White House, for example, that you might have an effect on policy, or that someone like the Dalai Lama, who recently visited Bill Clinton through his contact with Clinton, could have some uh, effect on policy? <coughs> Excuse me. I think we all are inter intertwined so much now that everybody has power. There's a great uh, balancing equilibrium or equalizing of power so that anybody that has a creative thought that tells their neighbor, who then tells their neighbors, who then tells their neighbors, it's just that we're all very few units of distance from each other. And so that if there is something that the White House is ready to hear, not from me necessarily or the Dalai Lama, but maybe we're just drips of water on a stone, I don't know, but that process will happen. And uh, the dialogue I've been having is just to share with the uh, with my friend that um, my appreciation of how difficult it must be to live in such a battleground without some anchoring in some kind of equanimity and spacious awareness where everybody in the organization is so reactive and nobody is quiet enough to be responsive. Nobody's standing outside of the system a little bit. In the old days, um, like kings and queens had elders, and the elders had no power. They were just there to keep a perspective about the game. We don't have those kinds of people. We have very knowledgeable people around the government, but we don't have wisdom. We don't have that quality because we don't know how to honor it. We don't know how to value it because it's, it's not a doing thing. It's a being thing. And uh, that dialogue of the doers and the beers has to keep going and going and going. And a wise administration is one in which the being and the doing are both honored and both. And that's where greatness comes in leadership, somebody that's quiet enough. But I think, and I think that the people in the White House have very good intention and are good and good, decent people. But I don't think they're quiet or centered. And I don't think they yet value that. I think they think that the battle is so intense that they can't do this. And I'd say the battle is so intense that they have to do this. I know that something that you've been thinking and writing a lot about recently is aging. And uh, I've been following your career in a small way since I was in high school in the late 60s. I first heard you on the radio on WBAI here in New York, and uh, I went to India perhaps partly because of your experiences and, and my desire to have similar experiences. Uh, we both now have gray hair. You have a little more than I do, but uh, <laughs> I'm also thinking more about the passage of time. And uh, it seems to me that there are a lot of spiritual lessons that are implicit in the aging process. And I know that this is something that you've thought about, and I was wondering if you could share a few of those uh, insights which you've had into the, the aging process. Well, I'm just beginning to think about these things. I just accepted a contract to do a book that I'll be doing over the next two, three years on aging. Um, because I am aware how much we are caught in a, a kind of cultural conspiracy to see age as a certain kind of reality. And um, uh, what I see is that the experiences that are connected with age, the experience of slowing down, of illness, of wrinkles, of uh, being seen as irrelevant in the world, 
uh, all of these things are incredible potentials to become free if you saw, see how to use those. If you see aging as another curriculum, as another chapter of life, and as a very profound one that required all the previous ones to get you ready for it, then you begin to look at the experiences of aging, all of them, including cancer and all of it, as just more of the process of becoming free. And um, I think it's, um, uh, it's the point where you have the best opportunity to do it and your irrelevance to the mainstream political game is part of the way you become free to do this stuff. And then to the extent that you are something that is worth being used by the society, then the whole role of elders starts to come forward out of the truth of the being of the situation, not out of let's form an AARP for elders. I mean, it's not that level. It's not a political issue. It's an issue of older people have the chance to tune to the deeper truths of the heart because they're not caught in the mind game so much. They have the chance of not being. At this moment, everybody in the society stays caught in the mind game. And in many cases, growing old can be a road toward bitterness and disappointment and uh, feeling that life is really over because life is so much defined in this society as sensual uh, pleasures, sex, a uh, certain type of yeah. enjoyment that young people can have but old people are left out of. Yeah, I agree. I, uh, I was interviewing a man the other day who was 75 and I said, what's the most powerful experience of aging? He says, that I still can get an erection in the morning. And I felt so bad for him, not that he doesn't have a right to have that, but that that would be uh, that he's holding on to who he was rather than who he is, and that he's still measuring himself by another standard. In traditional India and uh, China, and also, as I found out recently in reading Maladoma Somme's book, he's also at the conference, and uh, we're doing an interview with him, but he talks about how elders in West Africa they don't wash themselves, they don't clean their clothes, they actually become outcasts in a certain sense uh, for the very reason that, that you said. They're actually, they're, they're entering the other world. Uh, they're, they're going into their second childhood, they're going back to the spirit world, and they're less concerned with the things of this world. And this is a pattern which is quite far from our present culture, but which we, we may learn something from. It's a beautiful one, thank you for that. I'm gonna read the book now. <laughs> because uh, 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 the only part of it is that their business isn't only going to the other world, their business is also what role they play in relation to this world in their going. And I see that the society very badly needs in every domain of its existence the kind of wisdom that would come from people that would acknowledge their part as wisdom carriers in the society, not as knowledge carriers, but as wisdom carriers. And uh, so there's a very definite part to be played in that as it goes on. Thank you very much, Ramdas. You're very welcome. Thank you. It's fun to be with you. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you. Thank you.